Today's reading from God's Word is chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews. I encourage you to read along either in your own Bibles or on the screen behind me or turn to page 1005 in the church Bible in the pew in front of you. So Hebrews chapter 9. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself And all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered 
not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since it's the foundation, since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is God's word. Thanks, CJ. invite you to keep your Bibles open to Hebrews 9, and let's pray as we look at this beautiful passage this morning. Gracious God, thank you for your word, and thank you that you are a God who speaks. Lord, may we be a people who listen this morning. Give us ears to hear you. May your spirit open our eyes and soften our hearts to hear and see and receive what you have to say. And may you fill our hearts with confidence and hope as we look into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can learn a lot about what a culture values based on looking at what kind of space we devote to different things in the stores that we go to. How many aisles are devoted to a particular product or kind of product? And if you pay attention to that, one of the unmistakable conclusions that you will draw at your next trip to Target is that Americans really, really value being clean. I mean, there are two whole aisles of laundry detergent. Two aisles. There's a whole nother aisle of... uh, dishwasher detergent, there are three, four, maybe five aisles of household cleaners, and depending on how you count them, uh, on how you count personal care products, there's anywhere from three to seven aisles devoted to keeping our bodies clean. We like being clean. We like using clean bathrooms and eating off of clean dishes. We like smelling clean, feeling clean, looking clean. I mean, nobody wants to show up for work on Monday morning kind of smelling like Saturday's workout, right? Uh, If you're at a restaurant and the server gives you utensils with food caked on them, we're going to ask for new ones. We want clean utensils. It's just what we do. And, And it's why so many of you devoted so many hours of your day off yesterday to helping come clean the church. We like a clean facility. It's more useful for ministry. We want to take care of what God's given us. So thank you for those who who gave up a good chunk of your day yesterday. But the problem with our value for cleanliness is that for all of the products out there and all of our effort in using them, the cleanness doesn't last and it doesn't cut very deep. I mean, if you think about it, we just had a church work day last fall. Why do we need another one this spring? You know, that's 
kind of the logic our kids try to use with us on bath night. We just had a bath two days ago. Why do I have to have another one? Because you're no longer clean. The shirt was clean yesterday, and now it's going to have to be washed again. The cleanliness doesn't last, and it doesn't cut very deep. We're only ever able to kind of clean the surface, especially when it comes to our our personal lives. I mean, I can go out on Friday or show up for work on Monday or for church on Sunday with the boldest colors and the brightest whites and still feel dirty on the inside. You know, guilty for things that I've done or for the way that I've treated people or perhaps defiled by the way that others have treated me. And no amount of scrubbing or washing can cut deep enough to really cleanse me at that level. So if we really want to be clean, we need a detergent that cuts deeper than the surface surface and lasts longer than my next selfish decision or sinful mistake. And according to Hebrews, that's exactly what we have in the blood of Christ. A better purification, one that cleanses us both internally and eternally, purifying us from a guilty conscience in order to serve the living God. But of course, not everybody believed that when the book of Hebrews was written, just as not everybody believes that today. As we've uh, discussed several times, the major pressure facing the church that this book was written to was the pressure to leave Christ behind and go back to Judaism, back to the Old Covenant, as though Christ hadn't come or He wasn't the Messiah, as though there was no new covenant, just the old. And whereas most of us aren't necessarily tempted to revert to Judaism, uh, to that Old Covenant system, we are often tempted to try and approach Christ on Old Covenant terms as though the purification of his blood is only temporary. And so therefore to worship him or to serve him with an anxiety or an insecurity of what happens the next time I mess up. Or as though that purification was merely external. And so to go through the motions of serving God all the while hiding my own shame and my own guilt in the process. But the power of Christ to cleanse us is so much better than that. It is not temporary. It's not just external. It is internal and eternal. And that's what chapter 9 shows us this morning. And to make his point, the author uh, starts by reminding us how purification worked under the Old Covenant in verses 1 through 10. If you've been with us through Hebrews, you'll remember in chapter 8, he just got done talking about how much better the new covenant is than the old, how it's uh, based on better promises, and, and because of that, the old covenant is now passing away. But even that old covenant had regulations for worship and a earthly place of holiness, verse 1. God gave Israel a tabernacle because he wanted to dwell with his covenant people, tabernacle that was later replaced by a permanent temple. And he gave them a priesthood and regulations for worship because the covenant people he wanted to dwell with happened to be a bunch of sinners. 
And so something had to be done to atone for and address that sin so that they could approach him, so that he could remain with them. And so first the author describes the earthly place of holiness under that old covenant in verses 2 to 5. He takes us again, like he's done every single passage, back to the Old Testament to look at what it looked like then. And you had two sections to the tabernacle. You had an outer one known as the holy place, and then the inner, more sacred uh, section called the most holy place, or the holy of holies, depending on your translation. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant, the very throne of God, was placed. Now, the author doesn't have time to get into further details about that tabernacle, and so we don't either. And so verses 6 to 7, he goes to describe the regulations for worship, what happened in that most holy place. Verse 6, the preparations having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section, regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Not without taking blood to cleanse. Now, the idea of blood as a, of cleansing something is a bit foreign to us. I mean, we think of blood as the kind of stain that's really hard to get out of your clothes, right? You know, if my kids get mustard on the carpet, I don't run to the closet and find a bottle of blood to go scrub it with. It's just not what we do. So in what way is blood a purifying agent? Well, it has to do with the nature of sin and the nature of blood. When we think of the effects of sin before God, of disobedience, of of rebellion, we typically and rightly think of how sin rouses God's holy anger. It's, It's a rebellion against his person and his throne. It's high treason against heaven and therefore punishable by death. And so in ancient Israel's worship, forgiveness for that sin was only possible through the death of a substitute, a bull, a goat, a lamb, a death that involved the shedding of blood. As Leviticus 17.11 explains, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. That's why the author of Hebrews says later in chapter 9, verse 22, that there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. So we think of blood and we think of forgiveness, but but forgiving sin is not all that blood does because rousing God's anger is not all that sin does. Sin not only rouses God's anger, it also pollutes God's people in God's place. And that pollution disqualified God's people from being able to approach him. And so another function of the blood was not just for forgiveness, but for the purification, the cleansing of God's people and God's place from the polluting effects of sin in order to make worship possible. And that's what some of the Levitical sacrifices, if you go back to the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, uh, the first seven chapters are devoted to these different kinds of sacrifices that the priests would offer. Some of those sacrifices 
were specifically designed to purify the people and the place of God. Not just to bear God's wrath against sin, but to cleanse God's people. Specifically, the sin offering or purification offering, as it's sometimes called. And and you can see that by looking at what is the priest supposed to do with the blood of the sacrifice? And, And the instructions to apply it to different articles in the tabernacle based on the kind of sin or the person who commits it. The point was to cleanse what sin had polluted. And the author of Hebrews describes that a little bit later in our own chapter when he talks about the inauguration of that very first covenant. If you look ahead a little bit in chapter 9, to verse, verses 18 to 22, or, or start in the middle of verse 19, it says how Moses took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled the book itself and all the people. Worship for ancient Israel looked a little different than what it looks like today. I'm not up here throwing blood on you all. You could be thankful for that, and there's a reason we don't do that anymore. We're going to get to that in a second. But, but why do something like that? Because the people with whom God was making a covenant were dirty. Their sin had polluted them. Their sin had polluted God's place, and so the blood was the purifying agent. He sprinkled all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. It's this purifying, cleansing agent. And and so under the old covenant worship, The purification of God's people in God's place was possible by means of blood. Israel's worship was real. And the cleansing that they experienced was real. But, according to verses 8 to 10, it was only temporary and it was only external. And that's what we see of why we need a better purification. So he, we already know it was temporary because of verse 6. He said, told us how the priests had to go regularly into the outer temple. They had to go often over and over again because every time they would offer the sacrifices and, and the cleanliness would happen, guess what happens? Israel sins again, so now they're unclean again. And so it was a never-ending job. Um, so it was regular because Israel sinned regularly. But more than that, the whole system itself was designed to be temporary. If you look at verse 8, he says, By this, this old covenant system, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section or the first tent is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. That's his way of saying that as long as worship is carried out In the earthly tabernacle, the purification isn't getting to the real place in heaven. Not until we have a greater, not until the time of Reformation, as verse 10 puts it, when someone would enter the true holy place in heaven in God's own presence and bring that purification there. And so Israel's purification, the whole system, it was temporary. It was meant to point to something better. And it was external. If you look at the middle of verse 9, 
According to this arrangement, the gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They can't get below the surface, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, until this temporary period is over. And so these offerings can cleanse your sin enough to make you ceremonially clean for worship, to be able to bring your offering to God in the temple. But they cannot cleanse your soul. They cannot purge your conscience of the guilt of knowing what you've done to dishonor God or knowing that you're probably going to do it again. The Old Covenant offered a real purification, but in terms of of depth and duration, it wasn't much better than what you can buy at Target. It, It didn't go beneath the service and it didn't last. It was temporary and external. But imagine taking a shower once and never having to do it again. Or doing the dishes once and never having to do them again. Better yet, imagine having your soul cleansed once. Your guilt wiped away in a moment. Your conscience purified forever. A detergent with that kind of penetration and power would be absolutely amazing. And that's the power of Christ purifying blood for our souls. And that's what he, he tells us in verses 11 to 28. So now he begins to build a contrast between that purification under the old covenant and, and what Christ's blood is able to accomplish in the new. And he does so by showing specifically that, that contrast between the temporary and external, but how purification through Christ is both internal and eternal. It goes below the surface and it lasts forever. So first, Christ offers an eternal purification. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Notice that that language, once for all, an eternal redemption. The effects of Christ's offering never wear off, and it never has to be repeated. It's eternal. And so how is it that Christ's offering is able to last so much longer than what the Levitical priests did. Well, part of what makes his offering eternal is the fact that his ministry operates in the heavenly temple, not the earthly one, not the shadow or the copy where the Levitical priests served, as we talked about last week, but in the greater and more perfect tent, the very presence of God in heaven. And so what the blood of goats and and bulls and calves were able to temporarily do on earth to purify the people in the place of God, Jesus is able to accomplish for all time 
in heaven itself. He brings that purification to the real place. And that's what verses 23 to 24 talk about. Just as it was necessary for the, heaven, the, the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites of blood, so the heavenly things themselves need to be purified, but with better sacrifices. The blood of bulls and goats will not do to cleanse the real thing. And so when Christ entered into heaven himself to present his offering, that's what he did. He brought a better sacrifice. He purified the true tent with the blood of his cross shed here on earth. And that brings us to the second reason why his purification is eternal and not temporary. One, because of where it was offered. Two, because it's a better sacrifice. It wasn't the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus, when he executed his priestly ministry, didn't take uh, you know, signs and symbols. But again, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Think about how valuable his blood must be if with it he is able to purchase the forgiveness and cleansing for all God's people across all time and space. How valuable must that blood be? And every now and then, uh, one of my girls will bring their piggy bank and want to count their money and see how much they can buy with their money. You know, and we might have enough for a toy or a candy bar or something like that. You know, how, how much can I buy? How much does it cost to purchase the souls of all humanity? I mean, who among us could purchase a single soul? No one. Our, our lives are too stained by sin. But Christ's life is infinitely valuable not only because of his moral perfection, but because of his divine identity. Only someone who is true human and true God at the same time could offer themselves and that sacrifice be enough, or actually more than enough, to purchase the redemption of all of God's people in one offering. For we were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And because his blood is so incomparably valuable, he only needed to offer himself once. Just once. As it says in verses 25 to 26, nor did Christ appear before God to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all that at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ only had to give his life once. And it was enough. When he comes again on Judgment Day, it's not to you know, uh, offer himself again to take care of whatever sin might have happened between the cross and now. No, he comes the second time to 
save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's no more bearing of sin. There was one sacrifice and it was enough. And so he summarizes in verse 15. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. The old system doesn't work anymore and it doesn't need to stick around. We have something better. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In Christ, we have a better purification because it is eternal. And so just you know, to stop for a moment and think about that, what difference should that make in our relationship with God? The fact that we have been cleansed eternally through the blood of Christ. First, we should be able to approach God with confidence. If we are trusting in Christ as our Savior, that means our justification is complete. There's nothing we add to the work of Christ to improve our standing before God. We are clean. When we gather in worship, when we seek His face, when we pray to God, we don't need to add anything to the cross to make us more acceptable to Him. We are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are accepted, not on the basis of our gift, but on the basis of what Christ offered for us. And so, we can approach God with confidence. We belong to Him, and He loves for us to come to Him. We are clean and accepted. Our sin has been put away. It has been cast into the very depths of the sea. So we can approach with confidence and we can worship with confidence. We are members of a new covenant by the blood of Christ. You know, we celebrated communion this morning. That, that celebration, that ceremony is a new covenant celebration. Christ said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so it's a celebration that points us back to the finished work of Christ. It's not something that repeats that work, offering Jesus up again to the Lord. Um, some Christian traditions treat communion like that, as a mass, as a sacrifice, a non-bloody sacrifice, where we're offering Jesus again and again to the Lord for the atonement of our sins. That is a complete violation of what this passage tells us. Christ doesn't need to be offered again and again. It says it was not to offer himself repeatedly. Rather, Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many. And, and, and just as bad as kind of uh, attempting to offer Jesus again and again in our worship, rather than trusting with confidence in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. Doing that leaves us trapped in the anxiety and insecurity of the Old Covenant. What happens if I sin again and I don't get a chance to go to Mass to get cleansed before I die? Think of that insecurity, that anxiety. I remember as a child not really understanding the cross. And so for me, it was, I knew that if I asked for forgiveness, God would forgive me. But I was terrified, like, what if I sin and I don't get a chance to ask for forgiveness before I die? And there was just this anxiety 
There was no confidence in my relationship with the Lord. There was no confidence in my worship. But Christ has freed us from that anxiety. He's freed us from that insecurity because he has given an offering that purifies us forever. It doesn't just wipe the slate clean from the past. And then I can start adding stuff to it again. And then I you know, ask for forgiveness or do this or whatever, and it wipes it again. He takes the slate and he breaks it over his knee. It's gone. His blood is able to cleanse us from everything past, present, and future. That's the cleansing power of Christ. Christ's purification is better because it is eternal. That's the first point that he makes in his contrast with the old covenant. The second is that Christ's purification is better because it's not just eternal, it's also internal. It gets below the surface. So again, under the old covenant, the purification was real, but it was external. According to this arrangement, the gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body that are external, imposed until the time of Reformation. Now contrast that with what he says about Christ in verses 13 to 14. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, again, external cleansing under the old covenant, how much more does the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, internal cleansing from dead works to serve the living God. The old covenant wasn't able to penetrate beneath the surface. It could cleanse you externally for worship, but that didn't mean that you weren't just going through the motions of service while hiding the shame of your guilty conscience. The blood of Christ is able to penetrate deep enough to cleanse our very consciences to remove guilt, not just from the record, but from our hearts. Wow. That is so freeing and so liberating because it is so easy to be driven by shame, to be driven by guilt in life, not just in life, but in the way we interact with and relate with God, in our service to God. You know, I, I go to church, I read my Bible, I, I help others, not so much because I want to, but because I have to. And if I don't do it, I know I'm going to feel guilty. Or because I've messed up so bad and I already feel so guilty, so now I've got to make it up to God. And that becomes this driving motivation of a guilt-fueled worship. But the gospel of Jesus frees us from that guilt so that when we trust in Christ, we are cleansed in him forever. It frees us from what, what Hebrews here calls dead works, which I think here is service to God that comes not from faith but from the flesh, from performance. We are free from guilt in Christ 
Which is not to say that a Christian's never going to feel guilty. Guilt is a natural reaction when we do something wrong. But guilt should be the warning light on the dashboard, not the fuel in the tank. So we, we're going to feel guilty, and when we do, we should pull over and stop and say, okay, what's going on? Where have I, you know, is this the Holy Spirit convicting me of something I've done wrong? And if so, I need to confess it and repent not just to God, but to whoever I've sinned against. And, and if necessary, I need to make restitution for whatever I have cost someone else by my sin. And in that confession and repentance, I experience again the cleansing of Christ. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if the guilt I'm feeling is not so much a warning light, but it's the very fuel driving my whole relationship, then I need to repent of that and believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus is my great high priest, that his blood is enough to cleanse and cover all of my sin, not just the sin of my past, but the sin of my present and my future, I need to believe that God's not sitting there in heaven, tapping his foot anxiously, waiting for me to get my act together so that he can love me, but that he loves me on the basis of his son. That in his love, even while I was still a sinner, he gave that which was most precious to him to purchase and cleanse me and all of us from sin. Because when I continue to operate in my relationship with God based on guilt, which makes me either perform for God, try and make it up to Him, or pretend like I'm not really as bad as I am, when I continue to operate based on guilt and shame, what I'm essentially saying to God is, you know, thanks for the sacrifice, but the blood of Jesus wasn't actually enough. Not for this sinner. That's what we're saying to the Lord when we continue in guilt instead of believing and receiving the power of Christ's blood. My sin is too bad or his blood is too weak. But neither of those things are true. Neither of those things are true. And Hebrews has proven it to us a hundred times over. That Jesus really is enough, that he really is better. His blood is more than enough, and with it, he has secured an eternal redemption in order to cleanse our consciences and enable us to serve the living God free of guilt and receive the promised eternal inheritance. And so may we serve the living God with clean consciences. Not because we're not really guilty, but because we have a detergent that is powerful enough to wash away every stain and to remove it forever. May we serve the Lord, not from guilt and insecurity, but with confidence and joy in Christ. He is enough.
Let's pray. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen.